Live from Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to try to worship God in spirit and in truth, talk about everything that's under the sun. I'm your host, Sean McCraney, and our prayer tonight will be given by Jared, who came all the way from Seattle. Go for it, our brother, Jared. Our Father in Heaven, we're so grateful for this ministry, and we're grateful for fellowship and uh, we love you very much, and we ask for your spirit to be with us and be with Brother Sean tonight, that he will reach the hearts of those listening tonight, and we ask for uh, your peace to be among us and enlighten our minds to understand thee and be more close to you, and we give thanks to all things in our life, and we love you so much, in thy son's name, Jesus, amen. Amen. Thank you so much, our brother. Look forward to talking with you more as the night wears on. With that, let's begin a moment from the Word. One of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. Uh, we've played that intro, uh, but in reality, we aren't, I'm not going to be citing anything from the Word tonight. This just kind of falls under the category. Imagine for a minute that we're living in the year 1830, and there's a man who says, You know, there's no oxygen in outer space as we know it. So if we ever hope to get there, we need to find a way to protect ourselves from the environment, the oxygen-deprived environment. And he says, I think we ought to develop outer space suits, and they should have bubbles over your head so that a person could breathe oxygen out there that's pumped into the suit. And when we hear this, we might think, well, this guy's nuts. We're never going to be in outer space. Maybe we'll agree with him. But it would all be unprovable at that day and age, right? Then let's say the man adds this. And in order for people to get to outer space, they have to flap their wings. They have to, we have to put wings on them, synthetic wings, for them to fly, and they just flap and flap and flap until they get out into space. Now, in that day and age, again, we wouldn't know if his claims were true or not. They, were, they would still be unprovable. Now, suppose that we move out to present day, today, 2016, and we read this man's writings. So some of them, uh, when they're read, people will say, this guy was a complete idiot. Can you believe that he said all you have to do is get some synthetic wings and flap to get into outer space? Others might say, did you read where the guy said someday we would have spacesuits with bubble helmets to breathe oxygen through them so that we could go to outer space? In other words, some will focus on where the man was dead on, and some will focus on where the man was dead wrong. And this has been kind of the standard reception of people who step out of the norm for their day and time. Some say they are nuts and they have nothing to offer, and others uh, say that they had some inspiration and that they were dead on. Now, having been LDS and a student of Mormonism, and then having become a Christian and a student of Christianity, I've come to see a similarity between this analogy and uh, the way that we describe the LDS founding prophet Joseph Smith. Um, you see, just as ardent fans of certain professional sports teams hate the opposing teams, ardent fans of the Jazz cannot stand the Lakers and hate anything that goes against the Jazz, we tend to do the same thing as religious folks. We say, I am a this, and therefore I cast dispersions and look 
with an evil eye onto all other religious folk. I've done my share of painting Smith as a complete black-hearted, black-spined, evil, categorized him as even being demonic sometimes. Uh, not so much anymore. Now, interestingly enough, the things that tend to hold people in the Mormon faith today, um, families being eternal, the Book of Mormon being true, living prophets and apostles, are comical to my way of thinking. They, don't hold, they wouldn't hold me in Mormonism at all. But just because Smith made great errors in some areas does not mean he was entirely wrong on everything. We just love to paint everything black or white because it keeps ourselves out of the gray area where there's a tension. Believe me, I'm not slipping back into embracing the myths of Mormonism. My convictions where he was right come straight from the Word of God. They're supported by a contextual understanding of a number of ideas that Smith simply reworded or made his own in a way that was kind of unheard of by Christians in the day. For example, when he said the Bible is the Word of God as far as it's translated correctly, well, we can all agree with that. I mean, who would agree with a Bible that's not translated correctly? Unfortunately, the correct translation comes by and through the Spirit as we're reading the words and not through a man who designates himself as a prophet, seer, and revelator. So we differ there. Or Smith, when he challenged the Trinity, I can't help but think he had some good points in some ways. But again, he replaced it with a completely fictional story of that God was three separate and distinct physical beings. And so he was right on some parts, but wrong on the other. And then there's the Christian views about soteriology, how we're saved. Perhaps the most challenging is afterlife punishment that the Christians have. Each Smith gave some remarkable insights uh, about what those possibly could be. But again, I reject salvation by grace and works and that celestialized men and women will become gods. I reject that. But there is a lot of room in some of the things that he brought to the table well ensconced with Christian Christianity of his day, where he said, wait a minute, maybe there's this look or that look. And while I certainly do not believe that we owe Mormonism an apology, the way Richard Mao uh, said when he spoke at the tabernacle years ago, I do think that we are at the point where dogmatic demands heaped upon the LDS people by evangelicals for every single thing they believe to be uh, revised to fit the evangelical way. I think we are moving beyond where we can say, okay, you can give there, you can give there. This place, we're probably never going to agree and start to open up the conversation. All right, last week, I promised that we would start off with the emails. And uh, I have three quickly from David. He says, I uh, had a question on your views of full preterism and universal reconciliation. Generally, four preter full preterists believe that the world continues on eternally, okay? And he says, I don't know if you've ever expressed that. I do believe that this earth will continue on. We could destroy ourselves, the human race, but nevertheless, I don't believe that it is going to be a cataclysmic destruction. That's my view. Other people definitely disagree. He says, if this is the case, how can all people be reconciled to God without a definite end to history? It would seem that if death and sin continue indefinitely, then all people cannot be reconciled truly until those forces are completely put away. Uh, total reconciliation, in my estimation, 
God bringing the whole universe into him is an ongoing eternal thing. I believe he is constantly calling. People are constantly receiving. Some people are constantly rejecting. People are being uh, receiving their just desserts. People are learning. People are growing. I believe God is ongoing. I don't believe that there is a boom, this is over, done. I think all of that overdone boom happened in 70 AD with the house of Israel and Jerusalem. Again, could be wrong, but that's just the way I see it. Frank J says, if the faith is entirely subjective, isn't this the same thing as saying the faith is entirely relative? And if relative, then there's no such thing as subjective or objective truths. First, let's work this way. Let's, let me work it backward. I think that truth is entirely objective. Uh, it's not relative. It is not subjectively uh, created by each of us. Truth is truth. It's God's truth. And his ways are unchanging. But the application, the understanding of God's truths relative to each individual are up to the church they've attended, uh, uh, their maturity, their age, their educational level, their intelligence, their emotional and psychological makeup, their experiences with life and different people, their longevity, family dynamics. And so in a sense, God's objective truths are relative to us in a sense because we all embrace them and take them in at a different level and in different ways. And that's why you have children who have the faith of a child just being outstanding in their walk versus a PhD who understands all the ancient languages and has read the Bible 30 times who might be inferior. So we have to take in the spirit. We have to take in all those subjective uh, elements to understand how all that works. And I hope that answered that sufficiently. Our third email, I had someone ask me specifics about how has this world gotten better. Now, for those people who do the shreds for us, this is a shred moment in my estimation, specifically talking to Cassidy and Wendy and Mike uh, and his wife overseas. Uh, I guess this person had listened to a teaching I did at campus online and wanted justification for a claim I made that I think the world is getting better and not worse. A few thoughts. Firstly, in this world, everything is tied to perspective. I really, truly believe that. If you believe the world is getting worse, then the world is getting worse. And I used to be this way. I used to read the paper uh, in one hand, the Bible in the other, the news in the other, and I could see the world getting worse, and it justified my position, my, my perspective. Uh, it was only when I began to see the word differently and without uh, colored lenses of futurism that I was freed from that perspective. And then once I believe I was freed, I started to realize that my views were entirely slanted by this worldview that I maintained. And so everything is truly tied to perspective. Secondly, when I say the world is getting better, I mean this in a general sense, and I attribute the world to getting better to God, making it better. I don't believe humans are, are we are advancing, you know, and we are becoming uh, advanced to where we are entering into a new realm where our brains are being used and we can walk through walls and all that new agey kind of science fiction alien stuff. I'm just saying I think the world has improved. Uh, I think the world, this world, the fallen world, when compared to where it has been 
is in a better fallen state than it's ever been. A better fallen state than it's ever been. It used to be that when a child got a cold, they would die. And they would add to the very high uh, uh, infant mortality rates uh, of yesteryear. Not so much anymore. This is important. Uh, uh, it used to be that we had debtor's prison. And somebody could go to those grungy dungeons for 10 years because they didn't pay their grocery bill. We've become a little bit more reasonable on those things, and luckily that's not there. It used to be governments could actually stomp on the necks of all who oppose them, and uh, not as much anymore. That's a good thing. It used to be not very long ago that humankind could treat the world as its own landfill. They have a show called Mad Men. It all takes place in the uh, 50s, and they have a scene where these guys, the family goes out to a park, and they do this on purpose, and after their picnic of chi fried chicken and soda pop and drinks, the family gets up and goes to the car and drives away. And I remember those days when we thought, well, who, someone will pick up the trash. We don't have to worry about that. We just litter. You, we would take our trash as we're traveling across the highway and throw it out the window because that's what you did. You know, and we started, we started to say, you know, we're just, you know, doing that thing in an area where we live. Why don't we start being a little bit more conscious? There's nothing wrong with that. God is probably uh, not happy with litterers. And so that's an improvement. We have statistical proof that humans are starting to make some better choices relative to health and diet. We have statistical proof that the world is actually becoming less violent. Less, not more. So even with the immediacy of the news right in front of us for the world, it's like the worldwide headlines are in front of us. A, a kid in Afghanistan stubs his toe. We learn about it today here in Utah. Uh, it's easy to see the world cynically, but I think God has blessed us more and more and more as we strive to love each other, improve upon our circumstances in spite of ourselves. Today, fewer people are dying young. Poverty is still around, but extreme poverty is, is limited to some very uh, special third world places. And finally, as compared with our, just our even most recent past, even sexism and racism is starting to abate a bit. It's always going to be there. We're a fallen world and we'll always be there, but it's less. So where the world is still roiling in despair and difficulty, things are getting more reasonable and it has markedly improved over the past 50 years, 100 years, 1,000 years, 5,000 years, markedly improved, okay? So just 100 years ago, they were using uh, outhouses for bathrooms, you guys. We have plumbing, we have running water, and most of the world is picking up on that. My youngest daughter, talking about corporately, she works in a grocery store, and, and they have quarterly goals. This grocery store decided that if their store reaches the quarterly goal, any monies made above that amount would be equally distributed to all the employees based on the number of hours that those employees individually worked. Now, they didn't have to do that. They, did, they, could, they could be uh, as what we might, uh, some might call capitalistic pigs and say, we're gonna align the top ends pockets but no, they said, reach the quarterly goal and we will share with you. Why would they do that? Because they want to make an improvement. They don't just want to do it the way it's always been done. But take note, and this is very important. 
From what I can tell, there are still a few vestiges of old school domination thinking that continue to thrive out there. Banking is one of them. Banking's one of them. Wall Street is another possibly still close, but religious institutions are right up there with the banks. They, are, they have not changed in the least. Uh, I mean, for nearly 2,000 years, religious institutions using Jesus' name have capitalized on the time and income of people by misappropriating the biblical content to them as a means to benefit themselves, benefit their empire. And we, if you really step back, nothing's really changed in the big picture. Again, the human race has been willing to self-govern and change in areas with the environment, medicine, industry, social and civic affairs, education, technology, arts and entertainment, sports, all have marked advances in the betterment of the sphere of, of inf- in their sphere of influence, but organized Christianity remains utterly capitalistic, utterly immovable, and resolute in its traditions, all in the name of God. Okay? And here's the classic part of all of it. If you say this to them, they will say this standard response. Well, Mr. McCraney, the world may be getting better, but the world is falling apart spiritually. That's what they'll say. Spiritually, we are worse than we've ever been. Okay? Let me ask you something. Whose fault is that? Who has had the reins of religion for 2,000 years? And yet, what are the results of them having the reins? Spiritual decline. So where the rest of the world has kept up, moved forward, said, okay, we're not going to leave our litter. We're going to share our profits. We're going to help with this and that. The religions have said, no, no, no. We're not sharing with anybody. We're not going to start easing up on people. We're going to continue to threaten them with eternal punishment, with Jesus' imminent return, with tithes, with dress codes, with moral obligations, or they're going to go to hell, my God. And let me tell you something. They're the ones responsible for the spiritual decline. Who's been in charge? They have. In other words, the religious institutions are the ones who have been at the helm for 2,000 years, and look what's happened all because of their leadership. On the one hand, the churches are either empty. Go to Europe. Beautiful, monstrous churches are empty. Why? Because they built these monstrous churches, but they lack the spirit of love and God and Jesus to really keep the people wanting to learn more. So they're either empty or they become cults or they become mega churches that feed cotton candy, which leads to more spiritual decline. And we just keep allowing it to happen. The fault is two part. First of all, we've allowed it. We've sat back and we've allowed the institutions to have their way. And the pastors and the leaders have fed themselves on the results. I think institutional religion like banks, the last bastions have to wake the heck up and need to change. And the only reason they have lasted this long The religions is because they've used God and sin and afterlife and imminent second coming for 2,000 years to terrify people into complicity. Only when individuals at the grassroots level rise up and refuse to play along anymore will institutional Christianity in this day and age change and change for the better. Do pastors deserve an income? Sure, of course. 
They work for it. Uh, are buildings necessary to hold church? Of course, in most cases. Uh, but church should just be church, you know. And we've been talking about that. Not an empire, not an institution. Forget the denominational stuff, the dress codes, the tie, all that tripe. Forget about the church weddings. We, that's, that's, a, that's a creation of man. That's not even in something that we should be adopting for the church. We don't read the New Testament and, and Sapphira and Jones had a church wedding and Peter over. We, all this stuff is made up. Let's just get back to what it's about Jesus and teaching Jesus. I'm not suggesting uh, regulation by any means. I'm suggesting deregulation. Everything that has become regular, deregular it. Change it. Completely turn it over so that Christianity stops being the stodgy place that everything else used to be and moves forward so that it will be viable and attractive and people will come to know Jesus. All right. Um, last week we embarked on discussing Jesus both from a classical Christian and LDS point of view, uh, past and present. And we ended with talking about his name, Yeshua the Anointed. Let's talk about the notion of Jesus being the Son of God. Okay, that's our topic tonight. Admittedly, this title has caused me no small amount of trouble uh, simply because of its Old Testament application, not because of how I see him when he was in the flesh here, son of God, absolutely. Uh, but even among the evangelicals, it's not really clear what this means. Jesus is universally called the son of God by Christians and the LDS alike. This is important to us in this discussion because Christians better figure out how we actually see him as the Son of God uh, before we go and try to explain to the LDS how wrong they are and how they see him as the Son of God. The reason the LDS called Jesus the Son of God, listen, is because he is the only biological, material, physical, human son God has ever produced. Okay? He is a biological son of God. That's the LDS view. I make this clarification because the LDS believe that all human beings are children of God. Okay? So there's a distinction there. He is the only begotten to Mormons. He is the son of God. All Mormons believe I'm a son of God too. I am a child of God and he has sent me here. But they believe Jesus is the capital S son of capital G God because he's the only one that God biologically had. And that's what makes him the son, capital S, of God. Within Christianity, there are a few ways people see Jesus as the son of God. One, the Trinitarian view, is that Jesus, prior to anything existing, was the son of God the Father. Understand this clearly. Jesus Christ, Jesus the Anointed, was the Son of God for all eternity. In this view, there was a dad and there was his son, just like there's no different than this father over here and his son Jimmy sitting next to him. That is the Trinitarian view. This was provided to me by a recognized scholar who visited with me and clearly said that is the Trinitarian view. Uh, Matt Slick a guest that we had on our program in the past, he sent me a text. I asked him this question. This is his explanation, and I'm going to read it because, and, and I love Matt. Uh, he's a brother. He says that it's off to, to view Christ as the literal son like Jimmy's the son of that man in the eternal spectrum. He says this, 
First of all, it's on CARM, his website, and, the que- and it's under the question, what is the eternal sonship of Jesus? That's the question under CARM. He says, basically, it is the teaching that Jesus was always in a relationship with God the Father because God the Father elected people to be saved and the Son is the one to redeem them. Okay? This is, this is about a contract here. This is not about daddy and son. It's about God electing the son to redeem mankind. This decree of salvation is eternal. Therefore, this would necessitate the eternal relationship of Christ in relationship to the Father. Because the covenant's eternal, it would necessitate that the relationship is eternal, is how, what Matt says. Think of it as a contract within the Godhead where the Father relates and the Son redeems. But because the mind of God is eternal, this covenant must of necessity also be eternal. With this necessitates a relationship between the Godhead, between the Father and the Son. In other words, he says we need to get away from this human side of saying, well, there's a daddy and then there's a son. He says that scholar really has got that wrong. He says it's really because the promise is eternal to redeem and the son is the one who's going to redeem within the Godhead. That makes that relationship eternal. That's how he explains it. Heavy, but nevertheless. Now in the Old Testament, the title son of God is given to individuals who found themselves in a relationship with God. According to Gerald O'Connell's In his book, Christology, a Biblical Historical and Systematic Study of Jesus, page 117, we read, In the Old Testament, divine sonship, lowercase s, was attributed to angelic beings, the chosen people, and their king. Okay? Harold points out the, the title, Son of God, is found in several Old Testament passages, like Job 1, 6, 2, 1, Psalms 29, 1, Daniel 3, 5, which refers to angels. And we know that the angels are called the sons of God. They're in those texts. And the children of Israel are called God's children or God's sons in Deuteronomy 32.5. Even Hosea 11.1, speaking of the nation of Israel, listen, says this. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, we remember, typically, we read that. We said it's a prophetic utterance, speaking of Jesus as an infant coming out of Egypt. But in reality, uh, the first place that this describes is that Israel was in Egypt, and God called Israel out of Egypt. And so when he says, when Israel was a child, and I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called my son, referring to Israel as God's son. So we see some Old Testament things. First angels, now the nation of Israel, call the Son of God. Additionally, a number of Old Testament passages speak of God having a son, but are connected with coronation of Israel's king. Each king was recognized as God's representative or son here upon the earth. Only in later New Testament times would the same passages used to explain a kingly coronation be assigned to Christ as the Son of God. Let me give you an example. In Psalm 2, 7, we read, Thou art my Son, this day I have begotten thee. According to 2 Samuel 7, 14 and Psalms 89, this was a ceremonial proclamation that was made at that time when a king was crowned. 
that they would say, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. We, of course, sign it to Jesus now, and that might be the spiritual scales falling off our eyes and our ability to do that. But nevertheless, what it meant when it was written was for a king being receiving coronation. According to Raymond Brown and his book, The Birth of the Messiah, page 136, it says, quote, At the moment of coronation, a prophetic oracle explained to the people what God in heaven was saying of the king, which was, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Other directives were given and exchanged, all showing that the proclamation was to them at that time, for that place, and had no future application when it was written. I mention this because we have allowed pastors and preachers to create stories. We've allowed them to create myths all around Old Testament utterances that supposedly let the Jews know in advance that the Messiah was coming, and that just does not seem to be the case. They seem to have been blind to any of these ideas that the Messiah was coming until a certain period in time. In fact, the term Son of God used in the Old Testament has zero allusion to the coming Messiah and was not applied to the prophecies of the Messiah-to-be. You talk to most scholars, they'll say there's no allusion to a coming Messiah here. Nevertheless, as a means to assign royal coronation psalms to Jesus, many New Testament pastors and preachers have tried to legitimize his right to the throne by suggesting these passages spoke of him prophetically. Again, I am not saying they don't. I am convinced that the Old Testament speaks prophetically of Christ all through it. But I don't think they are seen as having any application to the coming Messiah by the Jews all the way up to the Maccabean Revolt. At the Maccabean Revolt, <coughs> at that point, the Jews started saying, we need a Messiah. We need a Savior to come and get us. And so they started to see their passages as relating. Prior to that time, there's no evidence of those passages having messianic application. Methodist scholar Newt Heim says, not one, quote, royal psalm originated as a prediction of a future savior king. Did you read that? You'll go to church, you'll hear the psalms. This psalm's talking about the future. They knew this. They didn't. They're all, he goes on, all of them originally referred to the king actually reigning at that time. A messianic meaning was given to them only after the disappearance of the Davidic dynasty. In particular, it arose from a contrast between Nathan's promise of an everlasting rule for David's house and the fact that David's dynasty ceased from political reality. The situation reflected in Psalm 89. So what happened was, Nathan says, David, your, your kingdom is going to go on and on and on and on. And guess what? It disappeared. And so then the Jews started saying, wait a minute, where did it go? And so then they started saying, we're going to have a restoration, a prophetic utterance of a Messiah to come. And this is how there's a connection between the Old Testament Son of God title and the uh, Jesus when he came. To shake things up even more, we have another common coronation passage. This is a passage they gave, David uttered. You're going to recognize it because Jesus assigned it, assigned it to himself. It's the Lord said to my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies my footstool. You recognize that? It's said, that passage is said more in the New Testament than any other Old Testament passage. Okay? Now, I fully admit this passage does speak of Christ. And I agree with the fact that Christ assigns it to himself when he talks to the Jews. But the original intent 
meaning of the psalm is clear when we realize that it was just David saying, in other words, King Saul was David's Lord while God was Saul's Lord. That's what it is. The Lord God said unto David's Lord, Saul, sit at my right hand until, until, until. That's the meaning of it in that time. So, again, I mentioned this. We're building a case not to take away from the, uh, Jesus being the Son of God, which he was, uh, but to bring in some context and some reasonable views. Without these reasonable views, we tend to overemphasize and overaccentuate the history and context of what the Bible says it means, which leads to overinflated, unnatural, supernatural views, which get hyperinflated as time goes on, and we lose content contact with the realities of what is really there, okay? And then when we clear the forest and we set all this stuff aside and see it for what it is, we're able to clearly then divide with our LDS friends of what is said and what is meant. I'm going to, uh, uh, wait, we've got, we've got uh, people from all over calling and we're gonna take uh, one thing here. I'll stop here. We'll continue on next week uh, with the idea of Son of God in the Old Testament. And then we're going to continue on and talk about what that meant in application to Jesus Christ and the LDS and what they have to say. Let's take a second and look at this spot. We'll come back. We're going to take a call from Brandon in Sweden and then I think Mark in Ireland. Jesus was born, and his birth was celebrated. And he grew in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and men. And then his time had come. Revival miracles, praise from the masses. But soon, those same masses turned and walked no more with him. And Jesus, in truth, suffered alone. He was mocked, denied, forsaken. He was killed on a cross like a criminal outside the city gates where the masses thrived. As sold out followers of him, how could we in our lives expect anything different? Love that spot. One of my favorites. Um, let's go to Brandon in Sweden on line two. Brandon, you're on Heart of the Matter. Welcome. Willkommen. Hello. Hello. Uh, Sean, I really wanted to thank you because I'm, without you, I, would, I wouldn't have left Mormonism because your show and all the people uploaded to YouTube, it's, it's been a great help. Oh, praise God. Praise God. Where are, you, where are you in Sweden? 
I'm in Malmo. Oh, wow. That's right near where my daughter used to live. Your daughter lived in Sweden? She lived in Babystrand. Where? Babystrand. Ingleholm. I have no idea where that is. Engelholm, Babystrand. Oh, 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 yeah, Engelholm. Oh, now I know. Okay. It's my accent. It's pure Swede. Really? Hey, so yeah. how, how is it over there being a Christian in Sweden? It's uh, pretty awful because, um, you know, I, I really am troubled because I, I'm unaware if I'm born again or how to become born again. And I'm having a really hard time. I've, I've been studying the Bible and I'm completely lost and I'm broken. And the churches aren't really helpful. Yeah. Uh, How long were you LDS, Brandon? Well, just like for half a year. Uh-huh. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, don't, I don't know how to, um, I'm trying to be as Christian as I can, but mm -hmm. I feel completely lost. You know what's amazing, my brother, is I'm looking out at our audience. We, we get 10 or 15 people sometimes here watching, and I can see people praying for you right now. And it's important because it's a move of the Holy Spirit, Brandon. You're never going to be uh, in a place to become a Christian, so to speak. God is going to make you one through His Spirit. And, and it's, a, it's a, an act of faith for you to walk and wait for that to happen. And so you're doing the right things in terms of you're reading the Word and you're seeking Him and you're broken. I mean, God loves that in us when we realize our need for Him. And so all I can do is encourage you, my brother. You just keep... Are you going to God and saying, reveal yourself to me? Well, I've been doing that, but not as much as I should have. Yeah, it's almost not a quantitative thing. If you've done it once then you've done it. And just trust. Just trust that He's there and wait for Him to reveal Himself. You're, you will begin to see things in a new way and you'll, be in, you'll begin to understand life in a, from a new perspective. It's the best way that I can explain it from a human point of view. But That's already happening. I'm, I'm already seeing life from a new perspective and I feel very changed. Oh, well then, then, then tell me what's wrong. I, I really don't know. It just feels like something's really missing. I feel, I still feel lost, but I feel like it's, it's, I'm, I'm living pretty much sin-free. I've changed very much, and I feel very different, And like, like you said. But I just I don't feel like it feels like something's missing. Something is missing, Brandon, and it's called the world. And you're, um, and you're starting to, you know, Jesus taught an order in Matthew chapter 5. And, he's, and he started off, this is how he described the people who should be happy in their walk with Christ. This is how he paradoxically described it. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's the first thing he says about those who follow him. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So you're automatically losing something if you're poor in spirit versus rich in spirit, aren't you? Yeah. And then the next one is blessed those are those who are who mourn. 
And so, you know, these seem very paradoxical. What do you mean, blessed are those who mourn? It's because you're starting to understand things from a different view, and you're losing something to gain something, and so you're sensing that. And especially when you leave the LDS Church, it has such a community, and it has such good programs and things, that when you lose that, there is a loss at times. It's hard for people. But trust Him. He is building you and reaching you, and in time, you will go through these things that he has for you, and you will start to have more joy and more hope. Yeah. Um, I just had a question. How yeah. important is it to attend churches? You know, uh, it really is uh, predicated upon your situation and your circumstances. What are the churches there? And uh, well, go ahead. The only churches we really got here are like we got like one or two Baptist churches, but every every other church is like a, a Lutheranian church. And I I went to one Lutheranian church to speak with the priest, and uh, because I was hoping he could help me, but he just recommended I'd go on a program to get baptized with like sprinkling of water or something. And I didn't like that idea. That's a good. I'm glad for that. Listen. Hey, uh, it's, not, it's not important, but it's really it's a benefit to have like-minded believers around you that you can talk with about Jesus, because it gets very lonely to not. And that's the reason you're going to the church. You can learn the Bible, and you can understand, you can read it, and the Spirit will touch you as greatly in your own home as it will in going to one of those churches. But it's really to fellowship with like-minded believers and develop a network of support. But if you don't find that, you go to the forest like, like Joseph did and read your Bible and, and pray and be a Christian on your own, and God will open things up. Maybe it's you who will start the church there. Who knows? Yeah. Thank you very much, Sean. Wait. In the meantime, if you go to campuschurch.tv, you can watch our sermons. We do have kind of a, an internet uh, congregation as well as a local congregation here and we have people who we are their church and you don't have to do any you don't have to join you don't have to be baptized you can wear your pjs you don't ever have to contribute and you can just learn the bible with us sounds great keep going my friend let me pray with you really quickly can i absolutely lord i just come to you with our our viewing audience who's praying right here and we pray collectively individually that you'll lift Brandon up out there in Sweden, which can be tough spiritually, and we pray that you will encourage him. Lord, we pray fervently that you'll make yourself known powerfully in his heart, and you'll use him as a tool to reach other people around him. We pray that he will not, uh, despair will not take him over and depression. We pray that he, you will send friends that love you, who are truth seekers in his path, and that he will be uh, sustained by their friendship and their fellowship. And we just pray for all of that area, anywhere in this world, Lord, that is lacking uh, believers and a, and a good, reliable uh, institution of a church. We just pray you'll bless those individuals. Help Brandon, our brother. Let him know that he, uh, his prayer, our prayers are with him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Love you, our brother. Love you too, Sean. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Okay, we have uh, Mark in Ireland. I think we've heard from this guy before. Mark! McCraney. What up? How's it going? How you doing? Well, um, wow. Um, that, that, um, that man, Brandon from Sweden, 
Um, if if you're still listening, Brandon, I know exactly how you feel. Um, it was for for a long time for me the the process of leaving the church is very difficult. Um, mostly because of of the of the gap of the loss of that institution in your life, but also you're you're made to feel for the want of a better word vitiated in God's eyes um because everything that you've or it's it's said it's presented to you it's packaged to you that everything you have um not achieved but all all the the blessings that you have felt maybe health or strength or comfort they're all gone and you're reduced in God's eyes for for the decision that you're making and that's a very powerful psychological thing to overcome yeah and it's not even why I called um but it's it's just bizarre that 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 Brandon was on the phone at the same time um so why I called okay um story time tell me if I'm taking up too much time I'll be as quick as I can okay go for it right you're very faint by the way in, in your voice, I can barely hear you. But anyway, um, a couple of weeks ago, can you still hear me okay? Yes, very well. Oh, oh right, okay. Um, a couple of weeks ago, um, a friend in the church, now when I say he's in the church, I mean he's a hardcore Mormon. I don't know if you know what a hardcore Mormon is, but if, if you cut this guy in half, he, he would bleed sacrament. Um, and then probably apologize for bleeding um but he he has a very sick child and the sick child was sick from birth all the way up for for, for a few years and years and over years the child has gotten gradually better where the doctors have said it's not possible for this child to ever get better and recently as in this year they brought the child back to be examined by the doctors and all evidence of the uh, whatever the medical condition was has, has, has vanished and my friend was so pleased that he, he, he called everybody in the church and said isn't this a miracle isn't it wonderful and fantastic and I don't know well probably from listening to you for, for so long I don't know where this came from but I asked him how many people that you spoke to said these two words Praise God. How many do you think, McCraney? None. None. Were you listening to me on the call? No, no, no. You know. Yeah. Mm. Right. So the question is, why do Mormons not say praise God? I don't think, I don't, really don't think they know him, in gen- generally speaking. I generally think okay. they believe it's the priesthood, the church, and then it ties yeah. to God. And the, the other half of the question is, how can I get my friend to view the, 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 the LDS organization the way I have come to view it? Because he's got the wife, the kids, the, the everything. He, you know, if, if he bleeds the church. It's going to be even tougher now that this has happened. He's pretty, probably yeah. pretty well ensconced. I don't know, my brother. I, it's, it's a tough one. But the way, when, okay. I think when, when LDS people are healed and they've been received priesthood blessings and things, 
The answer I always give is God will heal anyone who's calling out to him, whether you're LDS or Catholic or even an atheist. God will, he sends the rain on the just and the unjust, but it's really hard to uh, extirpate, if that's the right word, the yes. healing of the child from them being LDS. I wish you the best of luck. And by the way, may I say something to you? Go on. You are my brother and I love you. I go on now that you're making me all shy and awkward. <laughs> I don't believe that's possible, Brother Mark. Thanks so much for calling. We love you. Can I just get can I just get one last sly question in? Sly, yes. What's happened to me? I, you know me. I don't come out with stuff like that. I have a heart like a swinging brick when it comes to all spiritual matters. How can I come out with something like that? How many people say, praise God? Well, I think you, uh, you are understanding exactly what it's all about, my friend. That's the Holy Spirit in you, moving you. Uh, uh. That's bizarre. <laughs> uh, all right. Goodbye. Good luck. Goodbye. Good luck. Thank you. Bye. Listen, someone sent me this. Uh, and before I do this, uh, this is from Danny. Sometimes there are callers who need or want more help in getting answers to their questions and concerns and time on the air will allow. If you feel so inclined to mention on the show that people uh, leave their number with Wendy, who we call Lusty Wendy here, I would be willing to follow up on those calls. We're probably gonna get a whole bunch now. Uh, just sensing there are a lot of people coming out and don't know where to find answers, resources, and who to safely talk to. Thank you, Danny, it's great. So listen. If you have further need to talk, 888-868-4686. One more time, 888-868-4686. Who you're going to get is not Lusty Wendy, but you're gonna get Derek, who will forward it to either Wendy or Danny or whoever else. So call that number if you need someone to talk to. And the reason we say this, on the front page of the uh, Salt Lake Tribune this past Sunday, uh, I think Saturday or Sunday, was a picture of a LDS temple front page made of cards, okay? And on the top, a hand was putting a gold Moroni on top of this temple made of playing cards. And underneath it said, talked about how the LDS church is facing a collapse. And this is big. This is the Tribune who, Peggy Stack Fletcher, she tries to be fair and, and equal based. She's talking about how people are leaving. And so they need to have a place that they can talk. And so call that number. We can be one resource. There's a lot of other ones out there, but use us. Listen, uh, good friend of the ministry, um, Phyllis is her name. She sent me an email and she said when she saw this, it made her think this is what we're trying to get to. Now, I don't know, Derek, can you, Derek, can you focus in on that? <clears throat> this is a picture, and this is going to really bug some of you people. It's going to really bother you Christians. Okay, can you? That's as close as we go? What does that title say? Humanity should be our race. Love should be our religion. And it shows a, a little black child, looks like she's in a Muslim garb, touching the face of a little white child who looks like she's in standard American child wear. And it's humanity should be our race, love should be our religion. Is this the message? Absolutely. If we can get to love, uh, it's going to be 
that's, that's, that's the end goal, right? Uh, but I would suggest the way we get to love is not by, oh, you know, I just love everybody. It's by Christ. It's by understanding who Jesus Christ is. Really quick story. I was in a, a restaurant the other day, Rubio's, sitting there, and a Muslim man who watches the shows came up and he sat down with me and we had a great discussion. He doesn't accept Jesus as the Son of God. I explained to him how I do accept Jesus as the Son of God, fully God, fully man. But we had a really good dialogue. And the only way that Muslim man and his wife, who's holding a beautiful baby standing by, are ever going to know that, that Jesus is the uh, Christ and that he is the way to salvation is for them to see and hear. So they watch the show, and then we have a dialogue about it. And I clearly am able to say, I believe Jesus is the only way. However, I do believe that you worship the same God I do. You call him Allah. I call him, I call him God. Okay? You worship the same one. I just think you're missing his son. And we can talk about that. This is the point. We don't need to eviscerate people. We don't need to criticize them. We don't have to hack them down. We don't have to say they're demonic. We don't have to say they, all the stuff we say, heretics, we need to bring in love. We need to be like this little child, touching the face of this little baby, and bring love in, and then we can bring Jesus in. Okay? Uh, we have a couple emails. This says, how much money is too much money? It's from Carlos. Dear Sean, it seems pretty clear from what I've read. Jesus didn't have a very high opinion about rich people or people that uh, dropped and also had people drop dead for lying about their offering. I've been trying to figure out how money fits in with my walk. Not sure if you remember, uh, I was recently born again. At what point does a person have enough? Is it reasonable as a Christian to save for your retirement? Or should that money be going to helping people that need it now? I feel that the latter uh, answer will uh, be a help to prayer that I've had for many years. Listen, uh, this is all understood privately between you and God. There are great humanitarians, businessmen, who have been very successful in this world, blessed by God. Uh, Chick-fil-A, I think of them. And they do wonders for God and have ample amounts of money. The question is, is do you worship it? And when I say, do you worship it, what does that mean? Well, is that the first thing that comes to your mind about your life? Is that what occupies your life is money? You know, and if it's not money, it might be something else. It might be wine, women, or song. It might, what is the thing that occupies first position in your mind? Whatever that is, that's what you worship, okay? So if money is up there ahead of God, you've got a problem. Even if money's in a close second, there's probably a problem. But, you know, we have to live. And if God blesses you, you have the right to use those resources and you don't have to give it all to the poor. Remember that day and age in the time of Christ that has a specific time. The Holy Spirit is with you and will guide you. If you want to give, you can give. If you don't want to give, you don't. You're accountable. You're responsible for the things that you've been given. You're the steward over them before God and no one can tell you any other way. This is from, listen, oh, I just, I got to read this last one to you. Oh, darn, I've got to have it. It's just amazing. Oh, yeah, it's here. You want to know how difficult it is to, to, to get out of Mormonism? Listen to this. Usually we have stories of people who are bishops and stake presidents and everything's going great. This is the other side of the coin. This woman says, I gave birth to three children. 
My first daughter died from a seizure at 32 on my son's birthday. He loved her very much. He committed suicide on Christmas Eve 2015. I have a very hard time dealing with this because I don't know where his spirit is. He said he believed in Jesus, but he was never a Christian or a Mormon. He was a troubled teenager. He married a woman when he was, who was 15 years older and had a daughter who is now 17 years old. He killed himself in their home. His ex-wife is the mother of this, and he gives the name, famous porn star. My granddaughter, gives the name, spends a lot of time with this porn lesbian star. Her mother is the mother of eight, and all the grown children are in the porn business with them. Her oldest son is the porn star's bodyguard. Uh, my husband has dementia, and I have severe and very painful scoliosis. He converted to the church because he wanted the priesthood. I want to know Jesus, she says. But I'm afraid to, have, to leave the LDS church in this small southern Utah town. That's the other side of the coin. We hear why people are afraid to leave because they have positions and their whole family and this. This family has fallen apart. I don't know of a family I've ever read who could use Jesus more than this one. And yet they're afraid to get out of it. That's how strong the relig rel all religions can have on people. Listen, God wants you to be free. He wants you to relax. He gave you life to enjoy. He didn't give his son so you would be in bondage, so that you would be cowering with fear over coming to know him. He didn't give you his son so that you could be trapped by religious uh, oppression. He didn't give you his son so that you could be trapped by the sins of this life. He gave you his son to be free. And, and if anything takes you from that, you've got to see that it's not doing what his son came to do. Uh, keep pursuing, I don't know her name, but keep going, keep searching, and he will give you the strength to walk away when the time is right. We'll come back and we're going to continue to, we're, we're, we're establishing the foundation of the Jesus talk, and it's some heavier stuff. But we're going to get to the stuff that really makes the difference between the uh, LDS view and the Christian view. And once those statements are really understood, we can then dialogue with each other about them. We'll see you next week here on Harlem. I'm on a ride, going nowhere. I am an existential cowboy on the wind. And I won't be coming out, I'm going in. This man's awake, a storm's arising The dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know And I can feel the light Monkey star